the Anesthesia Podcast. Good morning, Tanya. Good morning, Helge. Thank you for joining us on our first Anesthesia Journal podcast. Helge, tell us who you are and a little bit about yourself. So, first of all, I'm truly honoured to be on the first ever Anesthesia Podcast. Um, <laughs> my name is Helge Johansson. I'm a consultant anaesthetist at uh, Imperial at St Mary's mainly, but also do a bit of work at the Hammersmith. And I've been on Twitter for a while now. Born in Iceland originally, and but been in the UK for the last million years. And I think I'm finally going to get myself a UK passport soon. I've got my life in the UK test later on today. <laughs> and Helgi and I are based in the UK, but we've, we've also got Tanya with us. And Tanya's from a little bit further away than us. Uh, tell, tell us who you are, Tanya, and a little bit about you as well. Yes, so I'm also really delighted to be on the first ever podcast. And today is, of course, January the uh, 31st, Brexit Day. So I've yeah. been interested watching the tweets. <laughs> Apparently you've got how many? 350 million extra pounds per week for the NHS because of that. But we won't go there. So I'm I'm a consultant anaesthetist in a, in a town called Wollongong, which is about an hour and a half south of Sydney in Australia. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a clinical person. I work in public and private. I've been head of department for a while. And I, I'm a Twitter tragic, have been on it a while, um, and I'm really interested to, to see what social media can do in terms of medicine and medical education. Excellent. And it's Brexit Day, the 31st of January, but it's also the 1st of February tomorrow and published our February issue online and it's available now. And one of the editorials is the editorial that two of you have written uh, for us, which is excellent and which is free to read. And it accompanies a paper by a group from Manchester, uh, who are a group who are interested in tracheostomy safety. And this group reported a social media campaign and they aim to disseminate some key patient safety messages from the tracheostomy project to frontline clinical staff and it's an unusual paper because the intervention was a social media campaign and the data that they collected was things like engagement and clicks and how much that will cost and it's a really enjoyable read and your editorial you discuss social media and how it's changing the way in which medical evidence is published shared and judged but let's go a little bit further back how did you guys first get together to write this and what was it like collaborating from other sides of the planet from my from my point of view it was so exciting i got this email out of the a blue from the journal saying would you like to write an editorial with um trauma gas doc that's not quite what it said but that's what how i read it i pretty much got up on my bed and you know jumped up and down squealing full of excitement because this meant i was going to finally have access to trauma gas doc who i'd followed on twitter for a number of years and had um, really enjoy you know i enjoy his feed i enjoy the mix of professional and private stuff and uh, we were going to sort of have this gig together so I was like you could have asked me to do anything with them and I would have been like yes we're simply <laughs> doing <laughs> and how, how did it work the collaboration between the two of you how did, did he get in touch via whatsapp or email or did he speak all of the above, Twitter, WhatsApp, email, etc. And um, I, I remember we did a we did a WhatsApp call um, quite early on, and um, uh, it was a very reassuring call because I, we kind of got to know each other, and I realised that Tanya was actually a really good laugh, um, and and we could have a, a a bit of fun doing this article, um, and actually just a bit of fun getting to know each other. 
So we did. And from my point of view, we've been conversing on Twitter for a number of years. And I actually find that most people online are a similar personality to the one they are offline. It's very difficult to be an ex-murderer offline and then <laughs> pretend to be somebody else online. Usually the cracks show at some point. And Tanya, yeah. you recently met um, yeah. in London, and uh, we've been talking online for a couple of years, and that was probably the first time that I'd met someone that I'd had a lot of interaction with online uh, in real life, and a, a long time after that interaction started. But uh, have you guys actually ever met in the flesh as well? So we, we yeah, so we met also a couple of weeks ago after the conference, so that was pretty exciting. It's the name a of the pub. Outside, it was a... um, uh, next to the QE2 Centre. And uh, we met Laura Dugan as well, who's pretty great online as well. So going back to the paper from the tracheostomy group, and I said it was a very unusual paper because it's, it's not like anything we've really published before. Do you think other societies and other groups will be looking at it and thinking, actually, we, can, we need to change the way in which we target healthcare professionals and try and get that message out to them? Because in the past, I guess it was all about publishing your paper and talking about it at conferences. but. Now there's this other route where you can access people much more directly. Do you think this changes things? Yeah, so I think absolutely. It's the first real, you know, scholarly article which has shown that someone's paid money to disseminate their message. Um, and the message is a really good one. The National Trackey Safety Project has produced some really beautiful educational resources. Their um, their website, tracheostomy.org.uk, is, is it's multidisciplinary, it's collaborative. They've put patients and carers at the centre. So their content is incredible and it's just just so wise to use novel methods to to let people know that that content exists. So I think that um, people definitely should should consider that because it really breaks my heart. I mean, I, I look at people who do research. Research is, you know, you don't do it for, for glory, really. I mean, most researchers uh, are doing it in their own time, it's poorly funded. It's hard to get research. Um, the patients donate their time and their information to find new things so that everyone can benefit. And then finally, you come up with a research paper and you try and get a journal to publish it. And I mean, original research, you've got about sort of 10% chance of it getting published anyway. And then of things which are published, only something like 47% of things published are ever even read. And so that actually breaks my heart that all that time and money and effort has gone into something and nobody knows about it. And of course, it's only getting more difficult with the amount of uh, medical knowledge being created. So we have to find novel ways to disseminate science. It doesn't surprise me at all, particularly if you look at people on the train, they're not reading scientific papers. <laughs> Facebook. So what we need to do, if we want this stuff that that we have made um, and which will go around the people who go to conferences, no problem. If we want it to penetrate to the people that don't necessarily go to conferences and would rather read a, the mail online or whatever in, instead of reading their scientific papers, then we need to put that content in front of their noses. And the way to do that is through social media and through Facebook and Twitter um, so that when they're scrolling through their timeline on Facebook, 
suddenly they will see this thing that even might jump out at them and suddenly they become educated about tracheostomy care. I think it's an ingenious thing. It's not, I mean, it, it, it is novel for us, but it's not really novel in the, um, in the, in the general scheme of things. And companies from uh, clothing and, um, and popular culture companies have been doing it for years. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we're not at the forefront of this at all. We are no. behind. Medicine is behind, and anaesthesia is more behind than others. And it's really interesting. You know, we move, we've moved into patient-centered medicine, where we've taken the hierarchy away from the doctors and the clinical staff, and we've said the patients are at the center. They are at the center of everything we do. And I feel like knowledge is going that way as well. It used to be the professors in the ivory towers that were in charge of all the knowledge and you had to get an editor to like your idea and publish they were in charge and they would get the conference talks etc that's how you got your message across but now we're saying look no it's it's actually has to be learner-based content you have to put it in front of them those people who were able to target as well are patients and i like care professions and and we're not all keeping all this knowledge within our own silos a question for you both as well have ever use social media to look up a guideline or look up an algorithm or um, look at an infographic and, and use that in your own clinical practice rather than going directly to the papers themselves? Social media will push the guideline under my nose. Yeah. Um, so uh, like most of the research that I read, I actually read off Twitter because I've got a pretty good timeline now. There are geeks that read the papers, um, and um, and they will filter the papers for me, and um, means that I don't have to scan through millions of papers myself. But um, I get the important ones through Twitter, and uh, it's actually made me more up to date than I've ever been. Yeah, I echo that as well. I mean, I've I've been printing out the Dasati guidelines recently published. They're so fantastic, the um, awake tracheal intubation guidelines. When we have a difficult thing, I print it out and we all read it and we think, well, these are what these guidelines are. Are we going to follow this or are we going to do something different? It's sort of this sort of shared mental model before you start. Um, But I have never, I echo your comment, Helgi, because I have never been so uh, education and education evidence focused as when I started on Twitter because the thing is in your real life you know how do you do clinical medicine it's sort of most of it is you would it's an apprenticeship model and you do what your seniors tell you to do and they're really great however some of the things we're doing are not particularly evidence-based and so when you're in your hospital where everyone knows you and you're sort of a senior person there, you can sort of say, well, the, the sky is green and most people will sort of smile and laugh and, and agree with you. It's quite difficult to challenge someone who's senior than you. But guess what? Twitter doesn't care who the heck you are. You can say something that you think is absolutely correct and there's they'll go for you if it's wrong. And then yeah. you have to justify yourself. And I think it's the great hierarchy leveling thing. And it's interesting, a number of um, very established people are threatened by social media because people will directly challenge them on their ideas mm. in a way that might happen in their workplace. And, and certainly I find if I, if I put out something that's even slightly inaccurate, I get shot down in flames on Twitter within seconds. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Absolutely Me too. within seconds. Uh, yeah, go on. With, without, yeah. without even a word of apology. So that's interesting, Helgi, because you, you write a, a very popular blog, and I think you 
started that blog at a time where a lot of the other various popular blogs weren't maybe around. How long has that blog been going for now? It's been going for quite a while now. It started on Twitter, I think, in 2011, maybe 2012. Then the first blog post I did was actually from a, a serious incident that we had where one of our colleagues operated on the wrong foot, which ended up causing no harm. But it was just such a wonderful study of how non-technical problems can end up with the wrong operation. So there were lots and lots of human factor errors that contributed to it, including just putting the stocking on the wrong foot. And that became very popular. And I suppose that started it off. And then I've just seen it. I, I, I don't do it particularly regularly. And I do it. it I, I consider it mainly a rant. Um, and, um, and I wait for something to build up. And, and then I rant about it on the blog. And, and people seem to like the rant. I'm not very good at writing long pieces. Um, I tend to run out of words after about a thousand words. So, um, so it, it's all very digestible. In, in the editorial, you wrote about what happened with the hyperoxia guidelines. So the guidelines from the World Health Organization that suggested that we should be using a high fraction of inspired oxygen to prevent surgical site infections. And I mm. think you're quite ahead of the curve because we've later had a paper from John Carlisle and, and Paul Miles about some of the problems with that evidence. But what was really interesting was that you received quite a lot of criticism on that blog for suggesting that the guidelines perhaps weren't as good as maybe others might think. I don't feel smug about this at all, obviously. So essentially, these hyperoxia guidelines came out based on one paper. And I looked at it and I thought, this doesn't make any sense. Um, and I looked at the, um, the panel of people who, uh, the expert panel who decided that this was the right thing to do, none of which included an anesthesiologist. Um, and I wrote a blog about it, which did okay. But then um, the chair of the panel that came out with this went into war with me on the blog site. And then uh, the beautiful thing is that it, when you're in the right, which I was, by the way. Um, um, you, on, on social media, you don't end up fighting these wars alone, and you get other people coming in that help you and, and write their own angle um, just below your own comments. And, um, and it worked very well, um, and he ended up just leaving it. Um, and I felt slightly smug, and I thought, yeah, yeah I, I'm still on the right here. And then um, three years, three or four years later, the um, actual academic, academic wheel started turning and um, John Carlyle um, published his paper, which was a, an absolutely brilliant paper. And I have so much respect for that man. Um, yeah. He does something that I could never do because I just don't have the attention span to go into the detail that he does. I mean, that, that must have been very difficult at the time because people there who were being very critical of something you've written... I guess we're now in an age as well where one tweet can put someone in quite a lot of trouble. Yeah, it's a difficult it's a difficult line, and it's very interesting if you look internationally about different accounts. You find physicians from North America tend to have very sort of uh, corporate professional accounts. They've got a very they've got a professional headshot. They've got all the qualifications, and they. 
they very much just have a professional um, account and that is it. There is no sort of nothing controversial, no nuance, just very, um, very science based. The problem is I think probably in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, perhaps we're more comfortable with speaking a little more frankly. And I certainly enjoy my personal taste as I like. I mean, it is social media, so I like the social side of it. I like to know that there are humans behind these accounts. I'm not that attracted to these very corporate beige accounts. It's not that interesting to me. I really want to – I actually want to know what people think. So what are the what are my top tips? So my top tips are you need to organize your people on Twitter. So I've been very grateful when I've made a mistake on social media. For example, I was tweeting, um, oh, we had a Christmas, oh, we had an elf on the shelf, and I had a picture of that way in the background. If you really zoomed up, you could see half of a patient's name, which I hadn't seen. But one of my Twitter buddies just DM'd me and said, oh, you can see the patient name on that. I went, thanks very much, gone. And that was gone in a couple of minutes. I've I've got a similar thing there. Yeah, yeah, so I think you need to rely on your people. And if anyone has DM'd me and sort of went, oh, I've just deleted because I thought I don't want to upset anybody and I don't want to attract problems. The other thing is that there are certain topics which will attract people to your account. Um, So politics, that became very obvious. Like whatever you say politically, whatever side you're on, people are going to you know, have robust arguments with you. And if you want to have those robust arguments, well, that's totally fine. For me, I'm, I'll am i have a robust political argument in a pub, not so much on Twitter because it just it can just go on and on. I think medical topics, which can become political, are things like the opioid epidemic. Um, I once made a mistake where I was live tweeting a, a talk about um, opioids and that we should restrict prescribing, etc. And that brought out a bunch of people and that called me a monster. And it was horrible and doctors have got no feelings, etc. I think birth is something that's difficult to tweet about. What else, Helgi? What are the other topics that... So uh, I, I've actually been quite surprised at how positive my tweet or the response to tweets can be, and um, it, it's kind of brought my faith back into humanity most of the time. I, I think some of my tips. I mean, I, I, I don't really have a separate professional account from my personal account. I did at the beginning because my my trauma gastroc account was anonymous. Um, and I had a separate personal one, but it just did my head in, to be honest. And I just decided uh, quite a long time ago just to let it all hang out. And um, I, I kind of am the same person on Twitter than I am in, in real life. At least I think I am. Um, Tanya may be able to agree or disagree <laughs> now that she's actually met me. Um, but when somebody says something controversial to you, the, the temptation is to start going into a massive conversation, which then ends up escalating and you end up in a massive deep dark twitter hole that you really don't want to get yourself into don't feed the trolls basically if if somebody starts saying something antagonistic towards you just like leave it be and most of the time it will it will not amount to anything a great new thing that twitter has now is you can hide tweets replies to your initial tweet that are antagonistic or abusive um, so they don't come up immediately, but people can see them if they if they scroll further down, um, and and that's a way of kind of sidelining the more abusive tweets. 
but otherwise just uh, just be positive really um and don't be hypercritical of people try and be constructive in what you say rather than destructive and i agree politics can end up incensing people um i don't shy away from it necessarily but i don't dive into it wholeheartedly and um and again birth there's a there's a particular lobby i ended up in a bit of trouble over nitrous oxide um when i uh, just made a comment that nitrous oxide was a bad greenhouse gas and we might need to think about it on the labor ward which um uses an awful lot of nitrous oxide and i i i, I got a, a whole lot of abuse for that um and but <laughs> which was interesting um our very popular topic and now absolutely absolutely and, well and, i just think you know yeah it is interesting you know i think um we sort of have to change our mindset about the complications with social media so you know when you teach someone put a central line in you know you teach them the indications the contraindications the technique um and then you you know, if you accidentally put it in the artery, we don't sort of say, oh, you've got a moral failing. We just go, oh, well, you've put it in the artery. What are we going to do now? We just flip into our, you know, what? how do we proceed with this complication? And I think we should teach social media in precisely the same way. It is inevitable that if you're on social media as someone who is who has a job or who is registered with an authority and teachers cop this a lot, actually, um, you know, some parents groups, you know, um, in my town, there was a there was a teacher who was caught with like a black Sabbath T-shirt or something five years ago um, and went to a religious school and the mums got hold of it, this picture on Facebook, and they wanted the they wanted this teacher to be gone. So, you know, I think if you've got a job and if you are registered with anybody, you are vulnerable because somebody can somebody's not gonna like what you have to say and they're going to go for you and they know the way of going for you is going for your profession and I mean I'm thinking about the physician who put on TikTok last week the week before the pro-vaccination video it was a really snazzy video about how good vaccination is and what has she copped she has had all these negative uh, patient reviews totally made up by the anti-vax lobby it's been so bad even Chelsea Clinton has commented on it to say you know she's supportive of her so I think it is entirely inevitable that if you're on social media, you're going to come a cropper like this. And we need to sort of get better about supporting people when it happens and just working out, oh, okay, you're in it, you're you've got yourself in trouble on social media. How are we going to deal with this? Just like any other complication in medicine. I, I like I like the concept of the the complication, and you know we're going to get a dual tap every once in a while. Um, we're going to get an arterial puncture every once in a while and this is how we deal with it we're going to get into hot water on social media it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it in the same way it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do epidurals just because there are complication rates to epidurals and i think um so we've learned the lesson from our own journal twitter account as well that for example if we tweeted something suggesting causation rather than association and that's been pointed out we just put our hands up and say yeah you're right and uh, uh, and we apologize and then um and, and then i think that's often the best way to deal with things so i'll finish with one question for each of you so Helgi, can you imagine a future where guidelines, etc., are spoken to as a, so, for example, we're dealing with um, an awake tracheal intubation or, a, or an airway problem uh, and we have a device, there's lots of popular devices we're able to speak to that are able to speak to us. Um, do you think we'll ever have that sort of level of integration in the future? 
So, so in the anaesthetic room, we go, okay, Google, I'm having trouble with this airway. What do I do next? Exactly. I don't see why not. The technology is actually here already. It's not even that the technology isn't here. Um, so th if, if we put our mind to it, this could happen right now. The most use it will be is when we get that our artificial intelligence enough, uh, good enough so that the computer can recognize what we're doing. So, for instance, are we, are we going on to um, the second stage of the difficult airway algorithm or are we still stuck on stage one and got ourselves into a, into a kind of paralysis, decision paralysis, in which case they could say, all right, it's time to move on to part two. The SATs are now at 64. It's time to think about front of neck access um, and that kind of thing. Um, I don't see why not. Tanya, you you um, have recently been appointed as uh, an international advisory panel member for the journal. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that role involves and um, and how you're finding that so far. So, um, so it was really exciting to be uh, invited to participate in the journal. And again, it's a it's a really great illustration of how social media can de-silo medicine because how would Andy Klein have known that there was this fabulous anaesthetist sitting in Wollongong with a lot to say without social media? <laughs> so <laughs> I've really enjoyed I just love hanging around interesting people with interesting minds um, and, and seeing how they view the world and how they see clinical problems. I mean, I've sort of, I trained initially in Auckland and then I was in London a bit and then finished off in Australia. And I really like this concept of de-siloing people um, and learning from each other um, and not reinventing the wheel. I get a really big kick out of that. So it's been really, it's been really great. Great. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for agreeing to participate in our first podcast. As I say, your paper editorial is free to access forever. I do hope that people read it. There are some really important messages in there. The blog will be online as well uh, today. The blog's being written by one of our trainee fellows, Ned gilbert Kawai, as well as the editor-in-chief, Andy Klein, and that provides a full summary of all the issue. The link to this podcast will also be on there as well. Uh, so thank you very much. Thanks, Helgi. Thank you. And thank you very much, Tanya, as well. Thanks so much, guys. The Anesthesia Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>